Good morning again. How are we doing? Good to see you today. As uh, you probably know, we are in week 14, and this is our final message in the series on the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to uh, Genesis um, chapter 40, and we're just going to fly through chapters 40 through 50. It's why I called it an overview. And so here we go. Uh, You'll remember last week we left Joseph floundering kind of in in this Egyptian jail cell, sentenced to life uh, after being wrongfully accused and attempting to assault uh, the wife of Potiphar. And so the government official that Joseph uh, worked for, and I say floundering, but that's really not accurate, right? Actually, he was able to thrive in that environment. Genesis 39 Verses 21 to 23, we went over last week, you'll remember, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention Uh, to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. We saw in the first part of Joseph's story that no amount of injustice or mistreatment could separate him from God's favor. God was with Joseph through it all, and he continued to bless him through it all. And it's because Joseph had decided it was better to pay the price for doing what is right than to reap the reward of doing the wrong thing. And and there was a price to be paid for sure. Slavery wasn't fun. Being accused of a crime, not fun. But he continued to trust God and he knew in the midst of all of the mistreatment that God controls the current of the sea that we sail. And though God was not to blame, God definitely was in control. Years before, God told Joseph in a dream that that he would lead his brothers, and Joseph believed that it was true, and we're going to see it come to fruition today. And here's Joseph in prison. He's become the right-hand man of the prison warden. Among his cellmates was two of Potiphar's officials. And while they're serving their time, they both start to have these dreams, which is right up Joseph's alley. Like, I got experience in this. And, And he was able to explain their meaning. And he told one official that he would be set free. And he told the other one, unfortunately, you're going to be executed. How would you like to get that message of the dream? Hey, thanks for that, Joseph. The one that was set free, Joseph said, remember me on the outside and help me get out of here. And sure enough, the dreams come true. The one man set free, the other guy put to death. The one that was set free was the cupbearer to Pharaoh. And after his release, the Bible says this in Genesis 40, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot about him. Thanks. It's like Joseph couldn't catch a break at this point, so two full years 
passed, guess what? Pharaoh began to have some pretty strange dreams. And, of course, he goes to the magicians and the wise men to get an explanation of the dreams. And they're, yeah, they're like, yeah, I got nothing for you. At this point, after two years, the cupbearer goes, oh, yeah, there's this guy, Joseph. He's pretty good with dreams. Genesis 41, verse 14, and then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So he gets cleaned up. Joseph listens to Pharaoh's dreams, and with God's help, he gives Pharaoh this interpretation. He says, seven years of abundance are coming to Egypt, Followed by seven years of famine. I suggest, Joseph says, that you find somebody with a good head on his shoulders, full of wisdom, to put, to put them in charge of the land, collect food, store it away, so that Egypt, when the famine comes, isn't going to be ruined. Pharaoh takes a look at, at Joseph and goes, you're the guy. Thanks for volunteering, Right? So, so now Joseph's second in command. And since God had made this known to you, he, he, he says, I'll put you in charge of my palace and the whole land of Egypt. And only when it comes to the throne will I be greater than you. So here's Joseph at the age of 30 or so, former slave, former prisoner, now second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world at the time. For the next seven years, Joseph does his job pretty well. He stores up food. He, he helps all of Egypt prepare for the seven years of famine. And sure enough, after seven years, the famine hit, and, and when it hit, it hit hard. Back in Canaan, Joseph's family, they were affected as well. And so Joseph's father, Jacob, heard that there was a lot of food in Egypt. And so he sends his ten sons on this trip to Egypt to buy grain. Right? Those are Joseph's half-brothers. His full brother, Benjamin, stayed home. Genesis 42, verses 6 and 7. Now Joseph was governor over the land. And he was the one who sold uh, to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their face, faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like, like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And in this, I want to remind you, Joseph is another picture of Jesus, right? Jesus sees who we are long before we see who he is. He recognizes you, and Jesus, what? Still loves you. In the next series of events of the story, Joseph's motives are sometimes a little difficult to figure out. Maybe he's still working on a strategy for dealing with them. Maybe he's testing them to determine whether or not they're going to be honest with him. But clearly his long-range plan was to reunite with all of his brothers and with his dad. Right? That's 
the end game. That's the end goal. Joseph accused them of being spies, and he told them, one of you must stay here as a, as a hostage while the rest of you go home and bring back your youngest brother. So Joseph's demand is clear, right? They had to prove that they weren't spies, and by proving that, that they were honest and, they, and they, that they told the truth about their brother back home. So the brothers agree to this, but they do it kind of reluctantly because they know Jacob's never going to want Benjamin to leave their home. And sure enough, Jacob didn't think that was a great idea. But eventually, the grain they purchased in Egypt was all used up. And to prevent his family from starving to death, Jacob's forced to agree to allow Benjamin to make the next journey to Egypt. And when Joseph heard that his brothers had returned, he invited them to lunch in the palace, and he asked about his father. Hey, is Jacob still alive? And when he saw Benjamin, his youngest brother, he was overcome with emotion. So much so that he had to leave the room and just kind of let all of the feelings out. And when he regained his composure, he comes back and he's like, okay, let's have lunch. And so Joseph made a seating chart for them at the table. The brothers were a little bit shocked to discover that they'd been seated in the order of their ages. So when the food served, Benjamin was given more food than everybody else. Right? Another test seeing how they would react when their younger brother was favored because they resented it so much when Joseph was favored by his father. So Joseph just, you know, he's putting out the test. Joseph wanted to see if there was a change in their heart or if they were the same men who threw him into the pit and didn't listen for his cries of help. And so later, after the brothers purchased the grain that they need, Joseph tells his steward to put the money that they had paid for the grain back into their sacks And then to plant a silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So the men get their grain. They begin to go back home. But before they gotten very far, just outside of the city, Joseph sent his soldiers after them. And their bags are inspected. And Joseph's silver cup was discovered. All the brothers are arrested. The brothers caught in Joseph's trap. Now, I think some people wrongly think at this point that Joseph did this simply to, to, to prove to them his position and power and to kind of torment his brothers and revenge for the pain and suffering that they showed him or, or, you know, gave to him. That's, you know, that's something that I would probably do, but I don't think Joseph was there. Knowing the character of Joseph... Guided by the hand of God, Joseph tested the hearts of his brothers and brought them to complete repentance. Right? They plead their innocent to Joseph, but he says, The only one who had the cup in his possession has to remain here as my slave, and then the rest of you can go home. And, of course, Joseph knew it was Benjamin because he planted the cup. So not totally sure for the, region, for the reason for staging this event... Maybe it was just like this elaborate scheme to rescue Benjamin from the older brothers before they did to him what 
what they did to Joseph. But I don't think Joseph was really prepared for what happened next. His older brother Judah, the one whose idea was it to sell him into slavery, he kind of breaks down and he says, please don't take my youngest brother, take me instead. Joseph can't contain himself any longer. He spills the beans, right? He tells them that, that, that he is their brother Joseph, and he wants to know if Jacob's still alive. His brothers are, are you know, shaking in their boots or their sandals probably, um, not boots, but, uh, you, you know, they're no doubt assuming that they were toast for what they had did to, them, to, to him. So Joseph says, it's fine, don't worry about it. He tells them there'll be five more years of famine coming and that they should go and, and get all their stuff and live in the land of Goshen to be near him and he would look out for them. Look at Genesis 45, 13 to 15. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother's Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon him. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So probably had a lot to, to catch up on. Jacob then makes the journey to Egypt, and, and Joseph and his brothers are reconciled. Uh, the family survives the seven years of famine. Um, and then Jacob lives in Egypt like 17 more years, and finally he passes away. And so with Jacob gone, Joseph continues to show kindness and mercy to his brothers that stayed there in Egypt to, to, to live. And, so, and then finally, um, Joseph dies a long time after the events of the story that, that we just went over. He, in fact, he lives till uh, the ripe old age of 110. So as we've gotten to kind of know the people of Genesis in this narrative, there are many with whom we can relate. Um, many of them make uh, boneheaded mistakes just like uh, we do, or no, I do, you don't. Just, just me, it's fine, right? On the other hand, Joseph is kind of cut above the rest. It's not like we can relate to him as much as we can aspire to be like him. Hey, even when the most nasty stuff of life comes down on Joseph, he remains faithful. And, and it might be seem weird to say, but he continued to thrive as a slave and as a prisoner. So what was it about Joseph that made him such a, an amazing character kind of guy? But that's what I want us in the remainder of our time this morning to consider three aspects of Joseph's character that kept him in this position to experience God's blessing all through his life, even when life wasn't all that great. So go ahead and take your note sheets out of your program, you can, or on the other side, and you can follow along with me this morning. There are three qualities in Joseph's character that we need to strive for. The first one is this. He was willing to be a servant even when life didn't serve him. Right? Here's Joseph, a foreigner, a slave, purchased off the back of a wagon, why did Potiphar give him such a high position in his household? Because he saw that Joseph was more than merely intelligent. He was more than merely 
an awesome administrator. He saw the quality of integrity and humility, and most of all, he saw in Joseph his willingness to serve. Right? You could put it this way to summarize Joseph's attitude. He was a guy that said, I'm here to make your life better. Right? How can I serve you? What did the jailer see in Joseph? He saw a man of integrity and humility and a man wanting to serve. And so Joseph could have been angry. He could have been contentious. He could have been an all-around pain in the you-know-what-see. Right? He could have made the lives of the guards difficult. Instead, he chose to look at his past circumstances and look for an opportunity to serve. Joseph might have said to the jailer, hey, man, I'm just here to make your life better. I'm just here to serve you. Same can be said of Pharaoh. He he didn't see Joseph as a threat to his throne. He saw Joseph eh, as an opportunity to increase the greatness of his administration. It's because Joseph's attitude with Pharaoh was what? I'm here to make your life better. I'm here to serve you. You see what I'm trying to drill down on this morning? This is who Joseph was. This is not just what he did. This is who he is. He was willing to be a servant even when life wasn't serving him well. Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served but to serve, Matthew 20. He he demonstrated this when he washed the disciples' feet. And then he says this in John 13, verses 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also ought to wash one another. You ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I don't know about you, but here's what I'm thinking. Like, probably like the disciples. Like, I'm glad to wash Jesus' feet. Right? But, But that's... Not the only thing that he says here, right? What what does he say? He he tells us to wash one another's feet. See, anything we do for each other that washes away the grime of the world and the dust of defeat, discouragement, it is a foot washing. And it's easy for us to criticize those with dirty feet, isn't it? Right? In, In the world, they criticize that's what the public press does, right? And it even creeps into the private circles. And, and here's what gossips say, right? They say, do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He's been in the muck and the mire. I mean, you can see it right there. Look at his feet. That's the world for you. Christ's way is very different. Jesus says nothing. He takes the basin, fills up with water, and washes away the stain. No judgment, no condemnation, but rather he seeks the restoration and the improvement of the transgressor. And so if we're going to wash one another's feet, we need to be careful of the temperature of the water. Because I think sometimes we try to wash someone's feet with water that's too hot and we're too energetic and we're, we show too much enthusiasm but then again sometimes the water's too cold and we're cold and distant to them. The temperature needs to be just right. 
And we should also remember that we cannot dry clean somebody else's feet. Are you tracking with me? Jesus washed us with the washing of the water by the word, Ephesians 5 tells us. And we should use the same water in ministering to others. The word of God is our source of truth. Jesus said this in Mark 10, 43, but it, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Joseph and Jesus, such great examples of doing real, real ministry for the benefit of those that they ministered to, not for the benefit of the minister. I just think a lot of people are in ministry for what they can receive rather than what they can give. Now let me say this to you this morning. Whatever job you have, construction, medical, whatever that might be, it involves service for the follower of Jesus Christ. And we've all seen the difference between employees that are in it for themselves and employees who are there to serve the customer or serve the company. I can't, at this point, can't help but think of professional athletes who say that they're in it to win and they're in it for the team, but in all reality, they're in it for themselves and they're in it for the money. We see it all the time. And I can name names, but I'm not. I'm just going to let it go right there. <laughs> That's growth, by the way, in me. <laughs> Right For the Christian, for the Christ follower, we're in it for the kingdom. We're in it to serve. We're in it to, to, to have a humble attitude like Joseph and Jesus who say, I am a servant and I'm here to make your life better. And so when we ask you here at our church to serve in VBS or to serve downstairs in children's ministry or to serve here or to serve there, we, we are encouraging you to be more Christ-like. We, we are encouraging, we want to remind you that you're in it for the kingdom. Here's another reason Joseph was always in a position to thrive. Number two, he'll be, he was willing to endure hardship if God's purpose could be fulfilled. So like nobody signs up to be a slave, right? Nobody signs up to be a prisoner, so some things happened in Joseph's life that he clearly didn't want have happened, right? It's not pleasant, but he accepts it. Because God was able to ultimately use it for his glory and for the good of his people of Israel. That's why when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he says in, in Genesis 45 verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now Joseph's honest about their sin. And yet in compassion, Joseph did not want them to be grieved or angry with themselves. Joseph was like past his grief and anger. And he wanted his brothers to get past it as well. And then 17 years later, after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers, they're still all up in arms over this whole issue. Like, Joseph's going to get revenge on us. We know it's coming. 
So, so again, he says to them in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so again, Joseph's not messing with, with the sin, right? He, he's, he's clearly saying, you meant it for evil. And although that was true, that's not the greatest truth. The greatest truth was God meant it for good. Every Christian should be able to see an overarching and unruly and an overruling hand of God in their life. To know that no matter what evil man brings against us, God can use it for good. Now I'm guessing that neither prison or slavery is probably not in the cards for us here today anytime soon in the future. But you will have hardships to endure. You will have to suffer injustice, and you will be treated unfairly. And though God's not causing those hardships in our lives, he is able to use it for the good of his kingdom and to further the gospel. And it may not seem obvious why this is happening. Joseph could have asked, how does my being sold into slavery, how does my, my being wrongfully sent to prison have anything to do with the promise that you made to my grandfather Abraham? How is that going to make us a great nation? And it's obvious to us today, right? We have the Bible. We read it and we look back on it. It just wasn't all that clear back then. And yet Joseph remains faithful. Joseph continues to trust in God. And the same attitude will empower us as well. I mean, like you can say, God, I don't understand why this is happening and what good could come from it. But I trust in your ability to work out the details of my life. And I'm willing to endure whatever hardship it takes for your will to be done in my life and the lives of those that you've called according to your purpose. And so God was able to bless Joseph because he was willing to endure hardship. All right, here's the third one. Third way that Joseph's uh, in, in a position to thrive. He was willing to let go of an offense and move forward in reconciliation. As the second most powerful man in Egypt, Joseph could have made his brothers pay for what they did to him. Right? He could have made them suffer and suffer greatly. They were at his mercy. So what did he do? He extends a tremendous amount of mercy. Like, if that were me, I'm jacking those dudes up, right? And when he finally told them who he was, he embraced them and he wept over them. And he offers them a place to live and he makes sure they have food on their table. And if that's not enough, later when they're worried about what he might do after Jacob dies, he simply says, verse 19, Genesis 50, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph knew it wasn't his job to bring the hammer down on his brothers. Right? If the Lord chose to punish them, the Lord would find an instrument other than Joseph to do so. But from a human perspective, Joseph had the right and the ability to bring judgment on his brothers. But he knew that God was God and he was not. And that kind of retribution was God's place, not Joseph's. 
And then he says again in verse 21, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's love for his brothers was shown not only in feelings and words, but also in practical action. Did you catch that? He actually does provide for his brothers and their families. And by the way, there's no such thing as a cold shoulder kind of mercy. You know, the one that says, I'll let you off the hook, but I'm going to punish you emotionally as much as I can. Right? That's not forgiveness. That's not the way Jesus forgives. When he forgives us, he says, and by the way, this next verse is wrong in your notes. It's Hebrews 8.12, my bad again. Um, But Hebrews 8.12, just scratch that out and write Hebrews 8.12 in there. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And he tells us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Which obviously means what? you got to let it go. Obviously, Joseph's forgiveness means a great deal to his brothers. But I want you to see that Joseph's forgiveness meant more uh, to him. Many people who have suffered mistreatment in the past spend the rest of their lives with open wounds uh, of bitterness and resentment. And, And lasting joy is not what they experience. Reconciliation is not theirs because they can't let go of the hurt. And therefore, the wounds never heal. Joseph wasn't willing to spend the rest of his life nursing the open wound of unforgiveness, right? And so what does he do? He lets it go. He he forgave his brothers. He provided for them. He even spoke what? Kindly to them. Corey Timboom said this after her experience in the German concentration camp. She said, forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and to realize the prisoner is you. God was able to pour out his blessings on Joseph because Joseph was willing to show mercy to those that hurt him the most. And and throughout this series, we have seen how God has extended mercy to his people again and again and again. He keeps loving them. He keeps guiding them. He keeps giving them a second chance. And in Joseph's case... What would happen when he says from the very beginning, I'm going to be faithful no matter what? Didn't guarantee him an easy life because, frankly, there is no such thing. Doesn't exempt him, right, from the hard times or unfair treatment because that exemption doesn't exist. But it does guarantee that in in the midst of the most difficult times that you could ever imagine, Joseph continued to thrive. Through every ordeal, every challenge, every setback, Joseph remained faithful and remained focused on his life's work. I am a servant. I am here to make your life better. Is that the cry of our hearts today? Do we wake up each day going, how can I serve God today? How can I serve God's people today? How how, how can I serve my neighborhood today? How can I serve those in the office today? That's my prayer, that that's a cry of your heart. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. God, God, our desire this morning is to be a Christ-like servant willing to endure the hardship. 
willing to endure the hardship so that your purpose would be fulfilled. So we understand today that a servant waits, a servant serves, a servant asks for directions, a servant seeks. And God, we want to have a servant's heart today. God, I don't know, but I just want to serve you with all my heart. I want to seek you with all my soul. And I want to depend on you with all my strength. Then the day I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And God, my prayer this morning is that you would use us. Use us individually to serve you. Use us as a church to, to serve you and in our community. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.